I, I love story. And I think we all, we like stories, whether it's in a movie, like to watch a movie, see the story develop, or it's in a book, take our time in a good, good story. We really like stories. Maybe it's a TV show. And this happens from, from kids. Um, you know, the Old Testament, it's a story. So, so, so we learn the New Testament, it's a story. The Bible is a story, and we love stories. Jesus tells stories in his ministry. So Jonah is frustrating <laughs> because it is a story. But if I were writing Jonah, okay, it's going to sound blasphemous for a split second, but it's not. If I were writing Jonah, I didn't, of course. I would stop after chapter 3. It's a really good story. Right? You get chapter 1, God calls him to go to Nineveh, and you're like, what is he going to do? He doesn't go, ah. And then, you know, God chases after him. Wow, he's running away from God. God's showing mercy and love toward this runaway. He's, he's asleep in, in the ship, in the boat. And then uh, God sends a pagan sailor to wake him up. And then they're asking him, who are you? Who are you? I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God that made the dry land and the sea. And then they throw him overboard. And then the sea becomes calm and, and all these. And, and it's a great story. It's great action in chapter one. You get to chapter two. The story's chaotic in chapter one. It focuses in on a conversation between God and Jonah, there's this redemptive arc in a certain sense in chapter 2, where now he's like, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then boom, another act of mercy and grace from God. He's vomited from the fish, lands on dry land, and then we get the exact same commission from chapter 1, and this time you're on the edge of your seat. If you haven't read it before, you're like, what is he going to do this time? And he goes, and you're celebrating with Jonah. It's an exciting moment. And then he preaches the shortest sermon ever preached, at least in this house it would be. It's a short sermon, but it works because it's the word of God. It's the message that God gave to Jonah to say. And the people of Nineveh, they repent. And chapter 3 is an explanation of their true repentance away from their evil ways toward God. And then chapter 3 ends. That move ends. And then you're like, yeah. And then you read chapter 4, verse 1. You're like, ah. Can we just close our Bibles now? <laughs> But actually, I look at chapter 4 as the climax of the story. Because up until now, we've had God talking to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. And we've had Jonah talking to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, the prayer, and the fish. But now, in chapter 4, we have a conversation between God and Jonah. And it is revealing because up until now, we don't know Jonah's motivation. We don't know why he's been running. So this conversation is just that. It is revealing. What we're going to see in Jonah chapter 4 is that the gospel leads to action. Okay, so I want you to keep that in mind as we go through today. The gospel leads to action. What do I mean? The gospel is not just something we feel not just something we experience. It's not just something we think, things we learn. It's not even just something we believe, but it is something we live. The gospel leads to action. I think we're going to see what I mean here as we go through. And, and it leads to action because it, it specifically shows us the heart of God. And when we look at the heart of God, we learn about who he is. We learn about who we are in relationship to who he is, our identity. And from that flows right action, correct action 
in light of who God is. So let's read now. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. We're looking down at our Bibles. Our attention and our hearts are up toward God. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Sounds like a really good worship song. It does. And he's complaining about his love and his mercy. So here it is. Again, up until now, we, we don't exactly, we can presume as to why Jonah is running. Maybe he's scared. I would be going to the Ninevites, fearful people. Maybe it's a really long journey. It was. I don't like walking. It's understandable. Maybe it's because God is calling him to leave the people of Israel and go to another nation because that was unheard of. It could have been partly those things, but now we see it. Jonah didn't want God's mercy to reach the Ninevites. He knows the character of God, yet he doesn't want that for them. He hates them. So he's angry. God's grace, his steadfast love, his patience, his mercy make Jonah angry. Didn't make him angry in chapter 2. But it makes him angry here in chapter 4. And this is the first gospel truth. Today we're going to see two gospel truths. Two truths about who God is. And from that, gain our application and our response. And the first gospel truth that we're going to see here is this. God has shown us mercy. God has shown us mercy. Amen? Jonah himself called on the mercy of God. He enjoyed the mercy of God when it was extended to him. That was chapter 2. But now he resents God's mercy when it is extended to others. I mean, what if God treated Jonah the way Jonah wanted God to treat the people of Nineveh? Jonah here was unwilling to extend to others what God so graciously extended to him. He doesn't remember the belly of the fish. Jonah was in the depths of the sea. His life was over. Seaweed wrapped around him. Darkness everywhere. The stench of the fish was probably still on him. He deserved God's judgment, and God spared him. God relented. God showed mercy. And now Jonah is unwilling to extend that mercy that he has received. He's not willing to extend that to the Ninevite people. For Jonah, there's a disconnect between his own receiving of God's mercy and grace and love and the grace he is willing then to extend to others. And I think that's what we're seeing here early on. And Jonah here, he's got really good theology. Spot on. He knew he says, I knew that God is merciful to the guilty. I knew that God is compassionate on weak humanity. I knew that God is slow to become angry. 
I knew that God is rich in faithful love on those who are unlovely. And he knew that God is willing to relent from sending judgment on those that repent. These are all right. And clearly Jonah knew these things before even God called him in chapter 1. And as we're reading the book of Jonah, Jonah is experiencing these things as we read. God relented from sending judgment on Jonah and instead sent a fish. God shows mercy to Jonah by commanding the fish to spit Jonah out on dry land. God extends steadfast love to Jonah through renewing his relationship with him in the fish. And God is patient with Jonah, gives him another chance to obey his commission. Jonah knows God well, both here and experientially. But he doesn't take what he knows about God. He doesn't take what he's experienced of God and apply it and do it. What Jonah should be asking is what mercy have I received? What compassion have I received? What patience from my heavenly father? What steadfast love has he shown me? How then can I not show compassion? How can I not give mercy? How can I not be patient? How can I not show love to those that even I don't think deserve it? And the truth is, God has abundantly given us, if you have put your faith in Christ, all these things. Mercy, steadfast love, grace. And we can celebrate these things, sing about these things on one hand, and then on the other hand, not practice them toward others or to one another. Parents, we can celebrate God's grace toward us, yet treat our children with a legalistic lack of grace. Spouse, we can celebrate God's forgiveness of us individually, but stay bitter and unforgiving toward our wife or husband. Friends, on one hand, we can celebrate the friendship of Jesus Christ, that he sticks closer than a brother, that he's with us, that he comforts us, that he helps us. And on the other hand, keep a record of wrongs for those with those we live life with, we do life with. Jonah here is living as if he has forgotten. Maybe he didn't forget, but he's living as if he forgot chapter 2. Which is why we need to be reminded of the gospel daily. We need to remind ourselves how God has given us our own chapter 2 experiences. In the depths of despair and sin, he's forgiven us. He's shown us mercy. He's been patient with us. And, and a daily reminder of the gospel, it will lead us, it will lead us to extend those things to others. And what I mean by daily reminders of the gospel is waking up every day, and I believe it is an everyday thing, coming to the foot of the cross, understanding I have nothing to bring to the table. It's not me. If it was left up to me, I'm running. I'm Jonah chapter 1. If it was left up to me, I'm angry. I'm stuck in my anger. I'm Jonah chapter 4. It's only through your strength, only through your mercy, only through your grace that I can be used for your will, for your glory, for your kingdom. That a relationship is even made possible. Jonah is living as if he has forgotten. And we tend to do the same. But it gets worse. Jonah chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says this. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So here we see Jonah's anger so severe that he wants to die. He would rather die than see the Ninevites receive mercy. That's where Jonah's at right now. And so here Jonah is opting for death rather than life. And it could be it's a similar attitude to chapter 1 in the storm. Where he seemed to have reasoned that if he was thrown overboard and died that that would somehow thwart the plan of God. It's either me or it's them. Just kill me. I'm done. Right? We're still seeing the stubbornness of Jonah here and even his wanting to die. Me or them. And then we get to God's question. We get to God's question here. Do you do well to be angry? A question we should probably ask ourselves regularly. But what a merciful God. So much patience here. He asks a question. Do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And the obvious answer is no. It's not right. Like the Pharisees were displeased with Jesus conversing with sinners, which was for the good of the sinner. It's like the older brother being angry with the father for receiving back the prodigal son. Jonah is angry, and God asks him if his anger is right. And again, even in the question, even in the question, there is mercy. Even in the question, there is patience. God here is, he's caring for Jonah. He's, he's discipling Jonah. He's growing Jonah. And I want us to see the grace and the mercy in that. God sends Jonah on this mission, this never heard before mission to go to an enemy city, a cruel city. Jonah runs from God. God goes after him. He's with him in the fish, uses him to turn a big wicked city from their sin toward God. And after this amazing scene of God's mercy on Nineveh through the prophetic word of Jonah, it's as if God sits down with him and has a conversation to help him see, help him grow, help him learn about taking his eyes off himself and putting it on others. It's incredible patience and incredible mercy. And those of us that have been serving the Lord for some time know of this mercy and this patience. Because we mess up time and time again, and it's as if God sits down with us to teach us patiently. And then we get to verses 5 through 6. It says this. Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was, and here it is, exceedingly glad because of the plant. God can multitask. I can't multitask to save my life. I can do one thing, and that's it. But God here is multitasking. 
If you look in verse 6, there's a bit of wordplay. And this wordplay is actually used throughout the entire book of Jonah. But I'll mention it here. He says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it, cover, made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from, here's the word, discomfort. And that word discomfort is actually the same Hebrew word used in chapter 1 to describe the wickedness of Nineveh. So God here, and, and, and scholars point to this, but God here, it's as if God is saying, I sent you, Jonah, to save Nineveh from their wickedness, and now I'm sending this plant, this worm, this storm, this wind, to save you from your wickedness. Right, so God's multitasking here. Of course, God sends Jonah because he cares for the Ninevites. But God sends Jonah because he cares for Jonah. I mean, if you consider, like, consider a committee meeting, and they all came together and they said, they had all the prophets in the meeting. This is not in the Bible. <laughs> so don't quote me. <laughs> but let's say there was a committee meeting, and you were part of this committee meeting with other prophets. And they said, we need somebody to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, no, they said, they said, what about you, Jonah? Jonah says, no. I hate the Ninevites. I would rather see them burn than turn. How many of us in here would say, ah, we found him. He's our guy. Send him. Like, are there not any other prophets that could do a better job than Jonah? At least attitude-wise. I think God sends Jonah because Jonah needs the grace and mercy of God. There's, there's a multitasking that God is doing here. God sends us, but he also does a work in us. And we, we shouldn't lose sight of that. That as we serve, as we work, as we work toward his kingdom, it is about serving others, but we need to recognize God is doing a work in our own hearts. And God's doing a work in Jonah's own heart, whether or not he sees it right now. God doesn't just send his people to save others, but he saves his people from their sins as they are sent. The sins rooted deep in their own hearts. And he asked, so he asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And in the, in the question, we see God's patience. We see his mercy for the wayward prophet. And at the end of verse 6, it says this. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And you'll note that this is the first time in the whole book that a positive emotion is related to Jonah. It's the first time. It, it is humorous. In fact, while we were just reading it, people were laughing. But I think we're going to learn we're more like Jonah than we hope. You can still laugh. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for laughing. But we are, we are more like Jonah than I think we realize. And I hope we see that in a second. But here, it's, he's like he's finally glad. Chapter 1, what's happening? He definitely wasn't happy the first time God called him. He wasn't happy in the storm. The text doesn't say that he was happy in the fish, even though it saved him from the waters. And when he was vomited out of the fish, he probably wasn't happy when God calls him again to Nineveh. But here, he's not just happy. He's exceedingly glad. He's like overjoyed. And what is he overjoyed about? A plant. It, the plant did it. Like, that's what it took. It took a plant. And it's crazy. Like, he's so 
man, just an emotional wreck. He's either exceedingly angry, there's nothing in between with Jonah, or exceedingly glad. And why is he glad again? It's a plant. So God continues with this object lesson for Jonah in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Also a little humorous. That word attacked in the Hebrew, it's a, um, it's a military word. So I just imagine a worm. Da, 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 charge! But, but, but it's not to signify that. It's to signify that, that he has appointed, he's still sovereign over Jonah's life. And even this, this worm is obeying what God has appointed it to do. So he appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down. That's the same word as attacked, as the attack word. On the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left hand and also much cattle. So God sends a worm to the plant so that it would wither. God sends a scorching wind to beat down on Jonah's head. Then he says for the second time, it's better for me to die. But this time when he says it, the first time when he says, kill me now, it's better for me to die, it's directed at God. This time in the original language, when he says, it's better for me to die, it's directed at himself. He's not even addressing God anymore. He would rather not follow a God that shows mercy to these people than to continue to follow him and see mercy come upon the people of Nineveh. And this is the gospel truth that we're going to see here. And, and this final question here, when, when God asks, should I not care? It's obvious for us on this side of the cross that he should care for these nations that are lost. But for the people of Israel, a lot of scholars believe that the book of Jonah was written to wake up the people of Israel to their own view of Gentile nations, to God's plan for the world. So, so it wouldn't have been totally obvious. It would have been something like, he's our God. We deserve his care and concern because of our position and relationship to him. Other nations, they don't. And, and, but God here is trying to show Jonah his heart toward those he has created, that he cares for them. He pities the city of Nineveh, an enemy nation of Israel. God cares. God pities. And this is the second gospel truth that we're going to see today. God cares for the lost. God cares for the lost. He says there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, what does that mean, 120,000 persons? Some would say it means the children in the city. Um, others would say it's just a generic number to, to represent a big number. 
Um, however, when it says 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, um, the phrase most likely refers, spiritually speaking, people that cannot tell their right from their left. They are unaware of God's law or living far from God's law, living far from God. And so God says to Jonah, these people don't know me. They're lost in their sin. They don't even know their right from their left. And not only are you acting selfish, but look what you're missing, Jonah. You're missing out on the very heartbeat of who I am. I care for the lost. Uh, there are 120,000 people down in that city, far from me, and I want to rescue them. And you're complaining about a plant. See, God cares for the lost, and I think Jonah misses this here. And I'm afraid so many times we miss it as well. I'm afraid so many times we're more concerned about the plants in our life that bring us comfort than we do about the people in our life that need salvation. And I'm afraid that so many times you and I are concerned over the things of the world, especially things about ourselves, but pay no attention to people who are far from the Lord. When was the last time we were broken over the lostness of Korea or our home country? When was the last time you or I wept over the people of this world who don't know the gospel in unheard places in the world? Let's listen to Jesus Christ's heart for people in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42 says this. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The Apostle Paul shares the same heart of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Jonah doesn't share the same concern that, does, that God does for the lost. So much so, he's angry. And anger reveals our heart, doesn't it? What we get angry about tends to be what is most important to us. So what is it that really disturbs you? What is it that really gets you upset? I think we'd find in our lives that we're a lot more like Jonah, maybe, than we'd like to admit as we spend our lives getting frustrated and upset about all the plants, all the comforts, all the pleasures, but we don't find ourselves nearly as concerned about lost souls. You ask, well, what, what, is this, what does it look like to share God's concern for the lost? What does that even look like? And I would ask, what do your prayers look like? What does your prayer life look like? Do we pray in accordance with God's heart for the lost? Do we pray for the unreached people groups of the world? Do we pray for those nations that maybe are even considered enemy nations of Korea or, or, or nations that have conflict wherever your home country is? Are we passionately in prayer for the salvation of the lost? But also, do we give in accordance with God's heart for the lost? 
Are we willing to give financially so that the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches the unreached people in the world? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then do we live? So do you pray? Do you give? Do you live in accordance with God's heart for the lost? Are you willing to go? And maybe you're not called to an unreached people group. Maybe you've been called to the unreached. Maybe you've been called to reach out to your lost neighbor. How will you respond to that call to go? Your prayer life, your giving, and your living should reflect the concern that God has for the lost. So the book ends another unique aspect. I know I've talked about how the book of Jonah is very unique. But another unique aspect is how it ends. Jonah's on a cliff, or Jonah's on a hill. It's a cliffhanger, sort of. But it ends with a question, not even a statement. So that's another reason why I say, why doesn't it just end at chapter 3? Like, there's, there's not, what happens to Jonah? That's what I, that's what I want to know. You know, what, does, does he, is there another worm? You know, what is it? What, what happens to Jonah? And we, we don't know. Did Jonah repent? Did he pout? Did he get happy again? Angry? We, we just, we don't know. But God intends that the Israelites, the original audience reading this, that they supply the ending. That they examine their own attitudes toward the Gentiles. And I think that God has preserved this book. I know that God has preserved this book because he wants us to supply the ending. By ending in a question and not a statement, the book leaves the issue hanging in the air. Are we going to have God's heart for the Ninevehs of our world? Are we going to have God's heart for the lost? It's a story that speaks to all of us who would rather just not get involved. We would much rather worry about the plants, comfortability, the coziness, keep it nice and neat inside the four walls of a church building. Because if we're honest, we're a lot more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. 1968, this guy named Thomas John Carlyle wrote a book entitled You, Jonah. Uh, it's a series of poems that he wrote about Jonah. I'm going to read that here today. It reads like this. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I would rather die than live in a world with a God like you. And don't try to forgive me either. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonah's and their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. So as we close, I want to raise this question this morning. Where do you find yourself in Jonah's story? Maybe you're someone who's been running away from God like Jonah did in chapter 1. If so, I hope this morning you'll make the decision to come back. Because I don't care how far away from God you have gone, how deep into sin you have sunk. If you return to the Lord, he's ready to forgive. Or perhaps this morning you realize you're more like Jonah chapter 4. You need to confess that you've been a lot more interested in the plants in your life that bring you comfort rather than the people in your life that need salvation. 
And if that's the case, then I hope this morning we move toward God's heart for the lost. So as we close in prayer this morning, let's pray to that end. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. Maybe this morning you, because you'll remember from chapter 1, that after the Jewish people in Yom Kippur, after they read the entirety of the book of Jonah, they would say collectively, I am Jonah. And so maybe you are Jonah chapter 1, and you've been running, you've been hiding a certain sin in your life. You need to confess that, bring that before the Lord, run back to him, not away from him. And when we do that, he's ready to forgive, or perhaps you're not sharing God's concern for the lost as you should. And we need to turn to him in that sense as well. So let's pray to those end. Confession, response, repentance, where repentance is needed, turning back to God from our running to the open arms of our merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pray together in one voice this morning.